are listening to In Pursuit of Development with Dan Bannock. Welcome to this episode of In Pursuit of Development. I think we all agree that our world is facing considerable challenges, and this is not just in relation to the COVID crisis, but also in terms of our desire to eradicate extreme poverty and hunger and address the adverse impacts caused by climate disruption. Despite such challenges, however, I have often argued that we cannot underestimate the numerous developmental successes that the world has witnessed in recent decades. Indeed, in relation to health, prosperity, safety, peace, happiness, you name it, humanity is much better off today than ever before in history. And although such achievements have not been equally replicated in all arenas, such as the environment, this should not deter us from asking what success means in practice and how such promising ideas can be mobilized, can be used by national governments and the international community in pursuit of sustainable development. My guest this week is Eric Solheim, and we'll be discussing the relationship between development and the environment, the need to change consumer behavior, and the future role of China, India, aid, and the United Nations in a post-COVID world. Eric has previously served as the leader of Norway's Socialist Left Party and for several years as Norway's Minister for International Development and the Minister of Environment. He's also a Norwegian diplomat and was head of the OECD's Development Assistance Committee. And until recently, Eric Solam was Undersecretary General of the United Nations and Executive Director of the UN's Environment Programme. I began by asking Eric to reflect on global development and in particular whether he could provide a more optimistic take on what is actually happening on the ground. The world uh, before uh, the COVID-19 done was the best ever. Uh, there has never ever in human history been so high percentage of the global population educated, in good health, living long lives. We tend to portray the past as a good time and we don't understand what was realities of the past. Before the Industrial Revolution, life expectancy on planet Earth was about 30. In China, the biggest nation in the world, before uh, the Communist Party took power in 1949, again, life expectancy was below 30. Now, the global life expectancy is 71. Uh, in China, it's uh, 77. Indeed, even six provinces of China now have longer life expectancy than the United States of America. So there is an enormous, enormous change. The amount of extreme poor in the world has never ever been as low as it is today. So we should celebrate change, celebrate progress. But of course, we need to identify the reasons why we have been so much more lucky in the last decades than we were before. So if we turn back to one when global development actually started, let's say 1950s and 1960s, when John F. Kennedy 
put up the Peace Corps or when development aid started or when development spread outside these Western European, American, Japanese bubble to the rest of the world? Well, make a comparison of two nations. In the 1950s, Madagascar was a little bit richer per capita than South Korea, maybe double as rich as South Korea per capita. Today, the average inhabitant in Madagascar is half, half as rich as the grandparents were in the 1950s. However, the average inhabitant in South Korea is 319 times. I mean, taste that number, 390 mm. times richer than the grandparents were in the 1950s. What happened? I think we, we know it very well. Uh, South Korea got it right on three main indicators, which Madagascar got wrong. One, good political leadership. Second, embracing the forces of the market and rapid industrialization. And thirdly, a very, very heavy emphasis on education, bringing every citizen into education. And today, <laughs> South Korea has the highest percentage of highly educated people in the world. Remind yourself, in the 1950s, it was dirt poor. It was one of the poorest places on the earth. And not one scientist at the time uh, predicted the rise of South Korea. Indeed, most people at the time would have said that Madagascar is much better suited for development than South Korea. So if you want others to, uh, to learn uh, to do better, let's put up the example of South Korea or Singapore, recent of Vietnam, nations with really uh, rapid uh, economic development, basically bringing all their citizens out of poverty. But some would say that the East Asian success, including South Korea, uh, and also more recently, in recent decades, uh, China, somehow promotes this authoritarian model of development. You mentioned leadership. But the fact is that if you look at uh, the relationship between democracy and uh, development, democracies have been much more slow, even though they're steady, like India or Costa Rica or even Sri Lanka. But the most rapid economic growth sort of patterns have taken place in authoritarian settings. So mind you, of course, authoritarian countries are also among the worst. So, so you know, and, and I, I wanted to ask you this because, yes, we talk about East Asia, we talk about China or Taiwan, or we talk about uh, Singapore. What about Africa? Do you see in the last few decades, do you see things happening in Latin America? Of course, there has been success. But what about Africa? First of all, if you really try to look into the issue of political system and its impact uh, on development, I think the key factor is leadership. Some democratic nations have rapidly uh, developed. Some slightly authoritarian nations have rapidly developed. No totalitarian nation has developed. Because if you're totalitarian, you don't get the new ideas. Uh, there's a fair in society. No one wants to invest. So totalitarianism doesn't work. But slightly authoritarian societies, like say Singapore or South Korea during many decades, yes, they develop very, very fast. But so have some democracies. And also these nations have moved from a more authoritarian into a less authoritarian, or even in the case of South Korea, democratic fashion. In Africa, I think it's exactly the same, all about leadership. Take as an example Rwanda, small, landlocked in the 1990s, had the worst genocide in human history, killing a much higher 
percentage of the population on NVLs, and even at a speed much higher than the genocide of the Jews during the Second World War. So the Holocaust of Rwanda uh, was a defining event and maybe one of the worst massacres in human history. Out of that came a rapidly moving Rwanda, now with very little corruption, with uh, rapid development, increased life expectancy, focus on education, all this. Why? Well, they have been blessed with great political leadership in the form of their president, Kagame, who's been able to recruit competent people to, le to leadership, make sure that there is no massive corruption. If we, move, if we go from the neighboring countries into Rwanda, you see the difference at the border. Uh, if, you sp if you speed too fast on the roads in the neighboring countries, or it's a matter of the negotiations with the police, uh, how much you want to pay. Uh, you pay and you pay it straight into the pockets of the policeman rather than into to the state. If you go into Rwanda, well, if you speed uh, you, or make some other uh, mistake, you go straight to the police station, you pay a fine, you are released, and the fine gets into the state budget. There's such a difference, but it also could spur development in a completely different way because it creates trust in society, trust with, with investors. Uh, and, um, uh, and um, business-friendly climate. You know, I was in Kigali a couple of years ago, and I was so surprised as to how clean that city was, and everything looked to be properly, you know, implemented, etc. And so I was very impressed with, with that kind of rapid development under President Kagame's leadership. But there is also a flip side to it, and people are worried. So, for example, in terms of future leadership, uh, who's going to take over? Um, is it just dependent on one leader? Is this a sustainable model if everybody depends on this one person? Uh, so the idea sometimes I get here is that people tend to promote these heroes or champions. And, and that is fine, except that often there are no second in command or third in command in the political party structure to take over. There may be lots of good people, but maybe they're not promoted, or there is this feeling of rivalry, etc. So I'm just, you know, sometimes a little worried about these success stories that may stop suddenly, because there are, there is nobody who can unite the country, or who has the kind of vision as this one person. Absolutely, I think it's a very fair uh, question to ask. And the true answer is, of course, no one knows the answer mm -hmm. uh, to this. There are clear examples of nations who were so dependent on the leadership of one person then it fall apart when that person disappeared from the scene. But of course you have also inspiring example of the opposite. I mean Singapore is such an example. I mean they, the, the miracle called Singapore reminds itself in the 1950s it was such a, a dirty poor place. No sailor was, would even uh, want to go in this, walk around in the streets of Singapore at night. Now it's the richest nation on the planet. I mean, at par, maybe even ahead of Norway or Switzerland as the richest nations in the world. That depended on one man for very long, Lee Kuan Yew, the founding father of the nation. He was, he was the leader for close to 30 years. But he was able to set in motion a system which has worked very, very well after he, he left the scene and even, even, even after he passed away. So there are examples of both, uh, but definitely leadership matters. But one of the supreme issues for a leader is to make sure that there is other leaders to be, who are able to follow. Um, 
on the positive side in uh, Rwanda, uh, Kagame is a great leader. He has been able to bring a lot of good people into government uh, to train them. They all have a contract with the prime minister, uh, which means that uh, the minister of education or minister of health, uh, is uh, his act or her acts uh, are measured every year. Does he or she succeed or not? Uh, so there is a it's a much broader system of government than, than the president himself. However, uh, yes, uh, there are issues related to who, what will follow, for sure. It's fascinating. I think Rwanda is a good case of, you know, homegrown solutions. They talk about its performance contracts, etc., to measure progress. Uh, talking on this matter of leadership, you know, I, I, I had one of the episodes of the podcast, I discussed this concept of leadership. And of course, we have some great success stories. New Zealand, you have Jacinda Ardern, who's just become really uh, the, the darling of the world in terms of her response, not just to COVID, but also how she responded during the, the terrorist attack in New Zealand a couple of years ago. But you have, and I read your uh, op-ed pieces, etc. you've been quite impressed with the East Asian response to COVID. Do you see a lot of what you were saying now does it apply to big crises as well as normal crises? Um, if leadership is good, effective, it's going to be good in any situation? Well, COVID-19 is, of course, the ultimate test of leadership anywhere in the world. It's a major crisis coming um, uh, without any warning to every nation, and the leadership is tested, and, and voters or citizens can judge what nations do well and what nations do not uh, uh, do not do well, and the result so far is very clear. Uh, East Asian nations have done far better than anyone else, including yes, Australia and New Zealand. Uh, Vietnam has not one single dead from the I'm virus. As yet. That, you know. uh, it's unbelievable. Uh, Mongolia doesn't even have domestic uh, transmission. Uh, Singapore and South Korea doesn't have anyone dying in old care homes as we have so many in Europe. Taiwan did very well send people to Wuhan at the early days to learn from what happened in, in Wuhan. And of course China has now one 120 part as many killed dead by per capita as the United States of America. The United States of America is 120 times more per capita than China. So there is a, there is a lesson here that uh, I think uh, very well said by, uh, by New Zealand Prime Minister, uh, as you said. She said, go early, go hard. Meaning you, you can't wait. It, the, the virus is doubling every second day. It means it's eight doubling in a week. So if you wait, take, you are much, much weaker. And if you try to make it slow, uh, it doesn't work. So the East Asian thing, adding New Zealand, Australian approach, go early, go hard. Uh, has worked very, very well, and it has worked in slightly authoritarian systems and in democratic systems. So Europe should just embrace it. They have done nothing they can't do. I mean, there's an excuse in Europe saying that, well, they are so little authoritarian, they have done things we cannot do. I'm not aware of anything that South Korea or New Zealand has done, which we cannot do here in Europe. So if you take the really weak examples, when you have such incompetent leadership, like the United States of America at present, or Brazil, it's a disaster. I mean, let's contemplate if the United States of America had a really competent president, say George Washington, <laughs> Abraham Lincoln, 
or even a normal president like Bill Clinton or, or George W. Bush. Well, the number of people dead in the United States of America would certainly have been one-third or one-fourth what it is today, because a competent leader would put the nation into the, uh, the war um, uh, modus of fighting this disease rather than flopping around. You know, one of the leaders, just to end this, uh, this point, that has, and by the way, lots of leaders all over the world, according to The Economist, they did a survey, a lot of leaders have increased their support from the population, surprisingly. And one person who has not been seen to be charismatic, but who has been praised relatively for the success is uh, Cyril Ramaphosa in South Africa, who's done exactly what you were saying, we're acting fast, acting hard. But uh, Eric, let's just move on to the role of aid in all of this. You mentioned leadership. You know that many of these countries that you referred to, at least the East Asian countries, they received some form of support from the international community, but a lot of it was also homegrown solutions. Um, and for many years, there's been this kind of idea that aid is important, but it doesn't necessarily uh, help, that the aid effectiveness agenda has been uh, a bit unclear. People, you know, can make a very persuasive case that foreign aid helps in promoting development. Others say it is mainly wastage. It has to be domestic resources, etc. I'm asking you this because you were the chair of the OECD's DAC, the Development Assistance Committee, for several years. And I wanted to ask you now, today, what are your views on aid, what is working? What forms of aid do you think is the way forward? Or should we just say, as Dambisa Moyo and the others say, aid is dead? I mean, this just, you know, we should be looking for investments. It is so I'm basically trying to put to you a question mm -hmm. that perhaps talks a little bit about the aid from the global north versus more emerging patterns we are seeing of South-South cooperation, China, India, all of this. What are your views on aid and development? Aid is, of course, a tool for development, and then you need to know what brings development. And that there are very few, if any, cases of development brought from outside. Development is a domestic, internal process. You need to put in place the leadership and the forces for development in a nation. China is the great development success story of the last four decades, bringing uh, from being 95, I mean, they had 95% people living in extreme poverty in the 1970s, now it's down to zero. It's a domestic process where aid had played a very limited, if any, role at all. Even if you move to South Korea, which is the great, or Singapore, which are great success stories over, over a longer period of time, aid was there but it was much, much less important than the domestic factors of leadership and the external factors of, of investment. I mean, when South Korea established fantastic companies like, say, Hyundai mm. <laughs> or Samsung, it was not because of aid, but because of the right policy framework and some help from the United States of America and others in the form of, of investment. So we need to put aid in the right place. Not one African nation, I'm aware of, is aid more than 5% of the economy, and the United Nations is everywhere less than 1%. Still, I go around to a lot of conferences where people speak as if aid is the main factor 
for development. It just who are these people who speak? Is it from the global north? Is it Europeans? Is it Americans? They are very prevalent all over the global institutions in the UN. If you go to a UN conference, you can easily find a conference where 100 good people come together and discuss aid to an African nation as if that's the main factor mm. for development. And of course, the same will happen with World Bank and many other institutions. You will find Africans buying into this, of course, maybe with the, with the, uh, with the aim of getting some, some piece of the cake for themselves or for their, their institutions in, in the land. But this, of course, it doesn't stand up to reality. Aid can be a small factor. I think we need to look into how it can help. In my view, there are two main areas for aid. One is to put a public sector guarantee for private investment. If you want major investment in, say, solar industry in Africa, or in wind farms, or in, or in hydro farms, I mean, really to electrify Africa, well, those investments are probably a little bit more risky than investing in solar in China or India, not to speak about Switzerland or Sweden. So the investor will not take the risk unless there is a kind of premium of, of, uh, where, the, where the government takes part, part of the risk. So this risk alleviation for private investment is one. And the other is to see it as a vehicle to support transfer of knowledge. All nations also in the north or, or in the global south will have brilliant knowledge in some areas. Not in all, but in some areas. Aid can be a vehicle to transfer that knowledge to a nation which need to need it um, to use it. An example, we spoke about Vietnam. Well, Vietnam is probably the finest example of how to create an education system uh, in the world. Uh, the average 15-year-old in Vietnam is now better educated than the average 15-years-old in the United States of America. I mean, who would thought that at the time mm -hmm. of the Vietnam War? Or in Norway. Why is that? Well, Vietnam has been able to set up a fantastic, brilliant education system. Well, bring that knowledge to other nations to struggle to get their education system right. They cannot copy it, but they can for sure learn from it. And aid can help that transfer of power. This is a South-South uh, transfer. Uh, in the case of Norway, well, we have fantastic knowledge in a few areas, like, say, hydro dams, or how to get the extraction of natural resources right, make sure there is less corruption and that the money is used for the benefit of the, of the citizens of the land. Well, these areas, we should transfer the knowledge and aid can, can be used as a vehicle for that. I'm a little intrigued, Eric, because you were the Minister of International Development for many years in Norway mm -hmm. and the Minister of, uh, of the Environment. And then you had this uh, position at the OECD. Would you have said the same? Would your answer have been different when you were a politician than what you just said now? Because I, I asked this because I remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, when you were minister, you said that aid is also important as a political tool. Uh, if, I, if I recall correctly, particularly in relation to, say, Latin America, you were, you were um, I think, articulating a view that one should uh, reward or or, you know, somehow provide aid to those that are doing good things or doing the right kind of politics. And um, whereas others would say, oh, but we are so lucky. As you know, in this country, we often talk about winning the lottery, etc. So we have to show solidarity, even if it doesn't help. So 
aid as a political tool and aid as solidarity. What do you think of those two sets of arguments? Well, of course, my views have evolved. <laughs> uh, if I was not understanding more today than yesterday, if I were not uh, trying to get a little bit wiser by the years, I would fail. Uh, I mean, l the longer you live, the more you should know. So my views have evolved. Uh, I think with aid, as with every other policy, you need to judge by the results. It cannot be the intentions, and intentions may be good, Still, you may even um, harm the world. I mean, there are lots of examples of people who harm the world by good intentions. So you need to judge on the results. And uh, unfortunately, quite a, a lot of aid practitioners seem to be wanting to avoid this test of, of results. I mean, if you want to support, say, better education in Ethiopia, well, you need to find ways of measuring where do you bring and help Ethiopia to get better education. If you can't judge on the results, you are failing. Of course, um, programs which support governments who have great programs in their own countries are more likely to succeed. And since you brought up Latin America, when, when we had the red-green government in Norway, we started the uh, climate and forest program, which is still kept by the present uh, center-right government, and they are doing, doing well. And that was a partnership from the beginning to a large extent with Brazil. At the time, Brazil was bringing down the deforestation rate in, in the Amazon very, very fast, uh, better than anyone in the world. Uh, they brought it down by 80%, which was remarkable, astonishing. No other nation had done that. Uh, and our help could play a little small, a small role in assisting Brazil to do that. But of course, it was based on their decisions, their policies, their dedication to this cause, then we could, through our aid, help them. Now, of course, with President Bolsonaro, we see a counter trend in, in Brazil, but I'm quite confident that this will be seen as a small hiccup and that Brazil will come back to the, to the previous trends because there is a very broad-based, strong green current in, in, in Brazil, even in encompassing most of the business. But aid, can it be used as a political tool for influence? I mean, I'm asking you this because uh, in Britain now, in the UK, uh, DFID, the, the government is proposing that DFID should be merged with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, and uh, similar discussions have been undergone, you know, undergoing here in Norway about NORAD and MFA, etc. And there's this increased focus, I noticed now, in European capitals and definitely in the US on the national interest, that anything that one does should be in the national interest. So solidarity is weakened. It is much more about profits and making sure that one gets to achieve certain goals that are important for one's country. I'm just wondering, do you see the world going in that direction? Or is there still a role for supporting democracies, supporting civil society organizations, media, youth organizations, uh, trying to foster democratic change, uh, democratic consolidation, rather than you know, the nitty-gritty measures of development that maybe are related to, you know, growth or poverty reduction, social protection. I'm just talking about much more of a, the ideology, promoting a certain type of ideology, which may not necessarily lead to something concrete in terms of measured results. If you don't see de uh, development aid as a political tool, you are fooling no one but yourself. Uh, this is just a way of fooling yourself, of course it's a political tool. 
even support for democracy, as you mm. mentioned, by basically everyone outside <laughs> Western Europe is seen as a political tool. It's a way of supporting other nations to create political systems uh, quite similar to ours, uh, to make the whole, whole world a big Sweden, <laughs> to, put, to put it that way. Of course, it's political. But if you zoom, let's zoom in on the, the what really started developing aid in the world, that was the martial help of the United States after the Second World War to Europe. There were three reasons why the Americans did this, and they applied basically to aid today also. They did it as a way of showing solidarity. The United States came out of the Second World War much richer than Europe, and they wanted to support their poor fellows in Europe. That's pure altruistic, it's solidarity. But added, the United States wanted to make sure that Europe didn't go communist, and they wanted to support developments with moderate social democratic parties or, or liberal parties in Europe to make sure that there was no communist movement. It was a political attempt, a political way of using the aid from the United States. And thirdly, it was an economic motivation. The United States understood that in the long run, American business need markets, need partners, need co-investors. And, and the United States would be much poorer if it just isolate the economy to itself, uh, the much broader economy of, of Europe and, uh, and America will benefit everyone. And I see development day to day exactly as the same. It's a solidaric uh, motivation, which we should keep, which is good. But there is also the political motivation. We need a more peaceful world. We need a world which, uh, where there are less uh, atrocities against people. They will by and large respect the Human Rights Declaration of the United Nations, so aid can, can play some role in that regard. And thirdly, uh, if we integrate economically in the world, it's much better for everyone. Everyone becomes richer if we have a uh, 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 world of trade where, where, we, where ch the Chinese sell to the Americans and the Americans sell to Europe and Europeans sell, sell to China. about China, let's, let's move on to just better understanding China's role in all of this and how China, and to a lesser extent India, has upended what traditionally has been the domain of the global north. And, it, and this is not a new thing. China has been, for example, supporting Africa for many decades, unlike what people think it's a recent event. But of course, in the last two decades, the activities have been ramped up. China had much more economic growth, much more resources that it couldn't use domestically. So there was this going out policy that the government encouraged their private sector actors to go out, seek uh, contracts in African countries, in Asia and Latin America. And what we do see, and I've been studying China in Southern Africa, especially in Malawi, I see that China has been very successful. Uh, and, I, and, and a lot of people find this quite surprising when I say that the Chinese have been far superior in the diplomatic maneuvers by selling the idea, a bit like what you just said, that it is, it is not just a one-sided process. They say it is, I scratch your back, you scratch my back. It is win-win. Unlike what the Western world often tends to do is to shape, even though you said that, the, that aid is always a political tool, but the, the impression that some countries get is that the West is just saying, it's charity, we don't want anything back. And one of the arguments I've been having is that China has been successful, particularly in trying to get people to understand, and the leaders in Africa, that, that China also wants something from them. So it's not like they're hopeless, you know? 
whether this is true or not in countries that are not as resource, uh, you know, uh, rich as, say, Nigeria, Angola, etc., is another matter. But the fact of the matter is that China says, I give you something and you'll get something. And that it is based on win-win, mutual respect, non-interference, and all of that. Uh, we're not going to dictate, they say, in terms of corruption or good governance, unlike what the, what, what the West does. So do you see that model? Because, And I'm asking you this because I know that Afrobarometer has done certain surveys, and the Chinese model of development is increasingly popular on the African continent. The criticism, of course, against all of this is that there is the risk of debt, especially the Belt and Road that you are very familiar with, is building very expensive infrastructure projects. You lived in Nairobi, you know the Nairobi-Mombasa railway project, and there's been lots of questions about that. So on the one hand, the Chinese model is very popular because it talks about non-interference win-win. On the other hand, people are now worried, especially in a post-COVID world, that a lot of countries are going to be stuck in huge debt to China, and that this is bad for governance because China does not have the kind of uh, you know, it doesn't preach about what these countries should be doing. So what are your thoughts on that? What, where do you see China in terms of this aid discourse? First, I think it's useful to remind ourselves that through most of human history, China and India were the most developed places on Earth. Until around 1750 or in the 18th century, uh, China and India as part of the global GDP was something like 70 to 80 percent. They were far ahead of Europe or America or anyone else. So then came 200 years, so what the Chinese would see as humiliation, and India, of course, would see as uh, the colonization uh, from the UK and what, what, what that brought. So, but from the 1970 onwards, both China and India started the race in the world again. China too faster than India, but both are now rap rapidly moving up the ladder and, of course, demanding their say in global affairs. And we should welcome this. <laughs> These two nations alone is close to 40% of humanity. They're so important. And they have something to offer <coughs> to African nations, which they consider South-South cooperation. As you say, they try to portray that as very different from North-South, uh, more equal. Uh, in reality, I don't think it's that much different from, from, the, uh, from the help getting uh, to Africa from the US or, or Europe. It's quite, quite similar. Uh, is this good for Africa? I mean, obviously so. I mean, more than 100 nations in the world now have China as the main, uh, main trading partner. They get a lot of investment from, from, uh, from China and some from India. And if the West have complaints with this, there's only one thing we can do, do better. At the moment, the Americans are running around Africa warning African nations against China. And I mean, you understand what, what, what would be the African re reaction to that? They will just ask, well, what can you offer? Can you offer something better? And I will be very happy. You are the prime minister of Malawi or, or Ghana. If the Chinese can offer something and the American can offer more, I mean, it's a fantastic situation. That's exactly what they want. Uh, but complaining about China gets the West of the United States nowhere. I think there are two main issues which should be contemplated. One is debt. However, still Africa is more indebted to the West than to China. But debt is a real issue uh, with the Chinese side. And the other is that China should turn this aid much more in a green fashion. Still, China is helping some nations to be locked down in, in coal, for instance which is, of course, a technology of the past, which you should get out of as soon as possible. 
Th those are very interesting perspectives. I'm glad because I was going to just ask that, um, you know, what, what is actually not working with the Chinese model, and that is what you already uh, alluded to. Because, and you're right about the United States and others complaining. You know, when but, I, I mean, one, one very interesting issue is, of course, the issue of non-interference in the internal affairs uh, of other nations. Here, the Chinese, I mean, they have not always been true to it because during Mao Zedong's days, they very often interfered in other nations, but at least they have had a policy of non-interference, while the West have had a policy of interfering wherever we saw something we didn't like. I think these are now moving a little bit more to a common platform because the Chinese understand that basically everything happening everywhere in the world <laughs> is, of impact, is impactful to them, so they cannot just stand on the sidelines. However, the West have seen that our main efforts to promote our political system to other places have been spectacular failures. Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, none of these, of course, were, uh, uh, were economically motivated. These were all motivated by establishing Western-style democratic systems in places threatened by extreme Islamism or other, other things we didn't like, and there have been spectacular failures, enormously costly in human lives, uh, and they have not succeeded. So I think there is a much less of an appetite in the West today in exporting our system to every, everywhere else, while the Chinese on their hand have understood that they have to be more active in a number of other places. So in reality, while there is no acceptance of this from Washington or Beijing, in reality, there's much more a common platform. So, you know, when I am in the field in Africa and I've been talking to ambassadors, I've been talking to aid officials, I often get the impression that uh, even the Western officials do not think China is competing. They often, including Norwegian ambassadors, have told me that it is more complementary, that we are doing different things. Whereas the West may support so-called soft areas of development, uh, China is doing the hard infrastructure kind of stuff um, that the West has not prioritized for a long time. And infrastructure, roads, buildings, bridges, all of these, or even stadiums, are um, are important for many, and hotels, and you know this kind of stuff that that China has been doing for many years. So that's one set of issues. But you're right about how, at least in the in the in international media, particularly in the American media, often it is portrayed as a competition between the U.S. and China. Unfortunately, of course, even during President Obama, the U.S. did not really make infrastructure investments in Africa. So I, I see your point about not complaining but doing something about it. But you alluded to this, the, the greening of uh, the, the Chinese aid and investments portfolio, which is a nice sort of way to, for us to start talking a bit on the relationship between development and the environment. And you've been, as I mentioned earlier, you've been minister of both international development and environment. I don't think very many people in the world have that kind of experience. And then you've headed uh, the United Nations Environmental Program. I mean, you really know, and you've headed a party, a political party in Norway that has had environment as on the top of its agenda for many, many years. What do you see are the key issues facing this, this field of trying to get economic development while protecting the environment? And I'm asking you this because since 2015, there's a lot of talk about the 2030 agenda. We don't really have much time left, only 10 uh, years left. We're talking about 17 sustainable development goals. I see some people now 
some world leaders in, in Rwanda, in India, in China talking about it, but not many other leaders. Um, where do you see this? What is it about this sustainable? Do you first let me start by asking you, what do you think about the concept of sustainable development? And then we can talk a little bit about environment and development, the relationship. I think the com concept of sustainable development is uh, brilliant. Uh, in fact, it, can, it came originally from the Norwegian Prime Minister, Gråland Brundtland. She, she uh, and her commission framed up this concept in the 1980s, and it is the right concept. Also think the sustainable development goals are, are great goals. However, they haven't taken fire. They are, taken, they are quite a lot used by business, interestingly, a little bit less by government, and much less by ordinary people. If you were to walk the streets of any capital in the world, you would find very few people who could associate anything with the de development, uh, sustainable development goals, simply because they are far too bureaucratic and, and less inspiring to, uh, to people. The real change in the world is, however, not coming from this global system, coming from what we can call the political economy, coming from the economy. And the, there is a major reason now to be very optimistic, because we had, the, we had a development model starting in the United Kingdom during the Industrial Revolution. It was very simple. First you go industrial, first you go rich, and then you have become rich, you start taking care of the environment. But for very long, there was massive pollution, massive development based on coal and, and, and fossil fuels, and you didn't take care of the environment until you had a certain level. It was the US, United Kingdom, then Germany, France, United States, Japan, Korea, and now China all the same model. Now we have a turning point, because no one based the development on coal because they thought it was good for the health, or for the workers, or the miners, or for the, uh, for the environment. We based our development on coal because it was by far the cheapest and easiest way of develop. The United Kingdom had abundance of coal, that's why the Industrial Revolution started there. Even 10 years back, 40% of the, uh, the, the um, energy mix in the United Kingdom was coal. Now it's zero. The last two months they haven't used coal at all, and they will face it out very soon. And India, of course, you say, see the same development. India now had a, a, a bid for solar. It was in the range of 10 billion US dollars. It was, by the way, won by Adani, a company which is related to coal, now moving fast into solar. They had the biggest, uh, they had the first uh, all solar airport in the world in India, the first all solar rail station. New Delhi Metro is attempting to go solar. And all this is based on one fact. Now, for the first time in human history, there is no economic reason to base development on coal. Solar and wind is cheaper than coal for new investment everywhere. Even in many places, new solar investment are cheaper than old uh, coal plants. The price of uh, solar energy has been reduced by more than 80% in the last 10 years. So we have a complete new development paradigm, which is possible, based the development on, on renewables and skip the coal. But the fact of the matter is that even though we know all of this, we still have major economies, the United States, China and India, still promoting coal. So India but, has had a, just opened up its license for coal mines, etc. But let, let me arrest you here, because mm. it's true that, say, the president of the United States of America is promoting coal. But the markets don't, don't believe him. No one, if you had $1 million, you would never go 
to the coal mines of Kentucky or, or West Virginia to put it there. Even the coal museum in Kentucky, which is promoting coal, has not gone solar because solar is the cheapest energy they can get in Kentucky. You will, uh, uh, of course, there you see huge investment in solar industries in California and Arizona. You see no investment uh, in the coal industry. And in the last years, the uh, America, uh, United States of America has reduced its uh, um, uh, climate emissions from energy dramatically, simply because of this market shift, which cannot be stopped by President Trump. So one of the things I do notice uh, is this kind of inconsistency. So that's my, my point here, and, and I thought we could explore this mm. issue, is that we know so much about clean and renewable forms of energy, and yet because it is often the cheapest form, because it is quick to build rather than a hydroelectric power plant, you have projects being funded by China and the United States that promote coal. Mm. And I know this also in some of the poorest countries in the world when I asked them why not build a hydroelectric power plant that would last for a very long time. It's clear they would say it's just too expensive, we don't have the money, we need it quickly. So my question to you is, do you see that kind of challenge, the trade-off, that you want development on the one hand, quick development, but you also want it to be clean energy, but it's taking long, you don't have the money. What should a country then do? Is, is that what explains this inconsistency that we see today? Well, Daniel, of course, very right to point to this inconsistency, but I, I'm sure it will, will, it will fade. In the 1990s, I remember we had a lot of colleagues in the foreign ministry in Norway that told me, internet, that is the fashion of the day. It will disappear. <laughs> don't, don't worry with the internet. Don't waste your time on that. Uh, in a few years' time, no one will ever speak about the internet again. We're at that point now in the transition into renewables. Yes, a few people are still in the old, uh, with the old ideas, but the change is so fast. Then just, uh, just last week, the United States Trump administration accepted the, the biggest solar plant ever uh, in the history of the United States, just outside Las Vegas. So if you want to go to Las Vegas to gamble uh, in the near future, uh, at least you can do it with the consciousness that you do it based on, <laughs> on, on sol solar power. So uh, there is such a big shift, but still not everyone has grasped it. But that, 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 that will come. The, the Chinese now said that they will make batteries for electric vehicles, which will last for 2,000 kilometers on one charge. I mean, who would then need a petrol car if you can charge it? And, I mean, no one is traveling 2,000 kilometers in a day, so, or most of us not, in, not even in a week or a month. So, uh, so this, this change is happening very fast. Uh, still, some people haven't um, understood it. Of course, there are some real life issues with renewables. I mean, you get more solar energy when the sun is shining. You get more wind energy when the wind is blowing. So you need also some backup energy, which has to come from hydro, which is very well suited for that, or from coal or from fossil fuels or other energies. But if you base your energy on solar and wind and use coal as the backup, of course, then you have a much, much more environment-friendly uh, energy mix than most nations today. One of the criticisms or one of the reasons why solar power has not taken off, of course, has been the cost. Mm -hmm. 
And China is doing what it can, I suppose, making things. Solar panels are becoming cheaper. Batteries, as you point out, have better capacity. Uh, and what we are seeing now is, at least in some parts of the world, a change. And this is not just in terms of consumption patterns in Norway or in Western Europe. Rwanda is actually producing and promoting um, clean energy. Uh, we're talking about e-motos and you know e-bikes and all of this. So, uh, but of course, in other parts of the world, that kind of consumer behavior is still not there. I mean, even in Beijing, you wouldn't have so many Teslas, even though people have money. Or in India, for example, I, I find it quite surprising that there's not more uptake on solar power given the abundance of solar energy. So I wanted to ask you about what your thoughts are on individual consumption patterns. Is it, is it us turning off the lights? Is it driving an electric car only uh, we should be owning an electric car only when it is uh, electricity from hydropower, not from coal. It just it seems to a lot of consumers that the kind of choices we have are not very consistent. So, you know, you're using an electric car in the U.S., but the energy mix perhaps isn't as clean as in Norway. What would you say? I mean, what what do we need to do? Are there lots of choices we can make or, or are, are we still evolving there, too? Well, this is a fundamental question, but I think we still need to put it in perspective. There is still about 1 billion or 800 million extremely poor people on the planet, which need to be brought up. But even with the huge, fantastic progress in education and life expectancy and nutrition, there's also a wide-ranging global lower middle class or, or billions of people who could expect uh, huge uh, economic progress. There's no way we can stop economic progress uh, and uh, bring people out of poverty and, and into the mid global middle class, which we, we really, uh, really uh, want to. Which means that we need to shift, change the habits and we need to change the technology. And these two are very much linked in, in my view. Uh, we can move into a, a, an economy which is a circular economy, where we, rather than throwing away everything, we reuse it and recycle it. So we have much less imprint on the on, on the environment. I mean, look at the electronic industry. We, we cannot buy, we cannot purchase a new phone or, or computer whenever there is a new fashion. A small change is a little bit better than the past, and then just throw away the old one. But we can use the component of the old one into a, a new one and create a circular economy, which of course has much less impact on the environment. Or move into transportation. Well, China now has 99% of all electric buses in the world. Well, if China has electric, uh, go, uh, is going electric on buses, why, why can't the rest of the world? China has 70% of all high-speed rail in the world, which is, of course, much more environment-friendly than, say, aviation. Well, if China can do that, and France and Germany, why, why can't the rest of the world? And, of course, moving to electrical flights, we have just seen the first, first electrical flight taking off. Governments need to speed up that to uh, to work with the uh, with with the science to work with the big companies to make sure that we get electrical flights as soon as possible because we will need av aviation. Still, nearly all Indians have never been into an airplane. I don't know how many, but let's assume that out of 1.35 billion people in India, maybe 50 million has ever been into a plane. 
most of the others would also dream of going into a plane and sometimes go from India from India abroad or from Delhi to Mumbai by, by plane. Uh, so you need to move into in a, another technology. But a sharing economy, uh, recycling economy or a circular economy, and an economy where we do more services and less production, all this can take us in the direction we want to go. That's fascinating. You know, I feel that there are two sets of issues here. One has to do with kind of consumer behavior and change in Europe, in America, what we can do. I mean, recycling more, you know, our transportation needs, our, our uh, desire to buy new things all the time, you know, uh, the way we holiday, all of those things. Um, you know, combating plastic pollution, all of those things. And I know you're, you're particularly concerned with that. Uh, on the other hand, you also have the desires, as you were saying, about the Indians and the Chinese. And often I hear also from my African friends, you guys are talking about reducing air travel. But we, yeah, you know, we need to because we need exposure. We need to, there are certain things that we have really, we haven't really polluted the world like you have. And now you're telling us, they say, that we have to reduce our consumption. And I often see this kind of um, argument, especially in, in Asia, but also in Africa, that well, the rich world is dictating. So in terms of the SDGs, etc., they say, we're still stuck on the first floor. You guys are talking about going to the fifth floor. Why don't you do it? So it's this kind of discussion, disagreement on burden sharing. And so consumers would not even think about, at least many, that they have to change their habits because they have so less. They're dreaming of a better world, but moving from a scooter to a car, you know, so they feel that maybe the, the burden is on others. What are your views on that kind of, the kind of different consumer dreams, patterns, behaviors? Or should we be advocating this also for the Indians and the Chinese? I have very little uh, trust in moralistic uh, uh, finger-pointing to others. If you point the finger to yourself uh, and change your own behavior, uh, that may set a good example. I mean, Mahatma Gandhi is maybe the prime example in the world of a leader who put himself to the same tests as he wanted for others. I mean, he was traveling around India on third-class uh, rail tickets. Uh, he had many friends in the business among business leaders and rich people in India, but he put himself to this test. So I have nothing but respect for people who put the finger to themselves. Finger pointing to others are not likely to bring any results, uh, simply because the vast majority of humans still desire uh, a better, more comfortable, less uh, dangerous, better educated life, and all this will imply economic growth. However, economic growth can take a new form, a circular economy. Why do we need to waste all the components uh, of, of our electronic industry or take plastics? Plastic is a bigger environment problem in the developing world, in the poor part of the world, than in the developed world, simply because, say, Germany or, or France has better systems for uh, bringing in a, at least to some extent recycling the plastics. So plastic is a huge issue globally. Uh, it's destroyed wildlife. I mean, camels or cows, whales and seabirds are, are eating it and dying. A whale died in Thailand the other day. It was vomiting plastic bags uh, while dying. So it's a huge animal issue. It's a huge health issue. Many people died in Accra, Ghana, uh, because the, the plastic clocked, uh, clocked the, 
the sewage system and, and people people died died from that and it's a major economic issue indonesia has de declared plastic as a real economic threat why well people won't go to bali for holidays if it, if they are swimming among plastic so to really move into plastics is a way of, of defending the the poor in the world because they are suffering the most from the plastic menace but we need plastic uh, and they used a lot of it during the the, the COVID-19 epidemic because plastic has been a way of protecting us against the uh, epidemic in different ways. But what are the solutions? Avoid the plastic we don't need, say straws, we don't need them, or balloons, we can, do ha we can, can have fun in other, other ways. And then move into new materials like plastic or similar products made from sugarcane or from potatoes. And th thirdly, creating a, a, a recycling economy where those companies who bring the plastic into the market, the Coca-Colas, the Nestle's, the Procter & Gamble's, or the companies who make the plastic, are uh, made responsible for bringing in and recycling the plastic. And if you reuse the plastic, of course, you create a sustainable economy where plastic can be used over and over again in principle. I think the plastic thing, the example, is, is a very good case where we see a change, not just in rich countries. We have many African governments enacting legislation against single-use plastics. Uh, you have Rwanda, even Malawi has done this, and, and so has Tanzania and Kenya. So I think that is something that that is really taking on. And by the way, I was recently in McDonald's here, and I got a paper straw or something, which is, you know, so there is a change happening. But I wanted to ask you in this segment, basically on this, what you refer to as the moral kind of judgments that we often have, that somebody else has to change their behavior. And I ask this because, say, even in Norway, and as you know, in Sweden and Norway, there's been in the last few years, there's this, you know, enormous momentum against uh, this kind of flying, this flight shaming. And I myself, I, I fly, I, I do work in all parts of the world. My, my research projects are all over the world. And I've been trying to change my behavior. I've stopped flying in Norway. I take the train. I, I, I try not to fly short, short haul or whatever. But what I often find difficult is that these moral judgments tend to focus on one issue rather than looking at the totality of changes we need. The fact that, see, I don't drive at all during a regular week or that I may not be polluting in, in other ways. So from a consumer perspective, I often feel that uh, this kind of shaming and naming can sometimes be or often be counterproductive because you're just putting people in a corner rather than Maybe even making people aware that using the internet can can lead to a lot of emissions. That these servers, actually, if you binge watch something, you know, that can also have an environmental footprint. So it is seeing the totality. Do you see that kind of discussion emerging? Or do you see, in, say, in Scandinavia and Western Europe, much more of that naming and shaming approach? The very kind of fun example of that the other day, I was writing in a newspaper saying that we see the enormous shift in the global economy. And maybe the biggest symbol of that is the fact that Netflix is now uh, more valued at the stock exchange than ExxonMobil. So it's a fantastic shift from the uh, extractive industry into the uh, service providing industries. 
Then some people said, yes, that's true, that's great. But please remind yourself that Netflix is also a huge energy consumer because you need a lot of internet space or a lot of, uh, of space on your computers to run uh, these high-quality films in the right way. So the world is more complicated. And I think if you start running around finger-pointing to others, you will always get in, into this. Fingers will point back to yourself and people will ask, but what about you? Um, are you... Well, you're telling me I should not go by air, but are you going by car? Are you vegetarian? Are you even vegan? Uh, are you using your computer too much? So you get into these kind of discussions which will not bring you anywhere. What we need is, of course, to all ask ourselves, can we avoid this uh, travel? Can we do it by in, in, a, uh, in another and better way? But the most important answer is to move into the better technologies if we can have flights which are run by electricity, which are provided by, by renewables, which I'm sure we can, it's just a matter of time to speed up that development. Uh, if we can move into high-speed rail rather than, uh, rather than air, going by air, that's of course good. If we can tempt people to eat less meat and more vegetarian, um, that's also very positive. But if we encourage a kind of culture conflict in society between the green, nice people like you and myself and the not so nice people, uh, you will very easily get this kind of culture or identity conflict, which are also hampering change because also those who don't want that far change are voting. Uh, and you see them voting for parties which are not environment friendly. In the United States now we have this crazy situation where the Republican Party is actually opposing everything green. Everything green. But remind yourself, the Republican Party was the party of Richard Nixon, who formed the Environment Protection Agency, it was the party of Ronald Reagan, who signed the Montreal Protocol to save the ozone layer, it was the party of George Bush Sr., who was a main driver of, um, uh, of acid rain legislations in the U.S., so this was a part, and, and even John McCain was a champion of climate action quite recently. So this was the party of green in the United States. And now because of this culture war in the United States, it's gone completely bananas. But there is no logic in it because environmentalism historically was a conservative trend, not a modernist or, or, or left-wing uh, left trend. So we, we, we must make sure that we don't create more culture wars because it will make the necessary shift much faster. And then, for example, encouraging people to go more in a vegetarian direction by promoting what we now see beyond burger, all these products which taste as good as even better than meat uh, and with much less impact on the environment is the right way to go. But encouraging, inspiring rather than finger pointing. Those are really, really interesting insights, Eric. Uh, a final set of issues I wanted to talk to you about has to do with multilateralism, globalization, uh, the kind of uh, global initiatives that we all uh, require, and yet we are seeing reduced international support for these. Of course, you've already highlighted the, um, the lack of interest of the United States in, in, in pushing for some of these global goals that they were perhaps previously more interested in 
in forwarding. And we see China increasingly, at least I've been arguing in my work, China is seeing an opening and is trying to fill that gap. There is global interest in, in development, in climate change, in addressing many, many of the challenges. And there's this need for financing, leadership, you name it, the role of multilateral institutions. And in this context, and given your uh, important role that you've played in the UN system, you were administrator of UNEP for many years, what is your take on the role of the United Nations system to function as a catalyst, as an agency, as a set of agencies that can support multilateralism? Uh, because I'm asking you this because there is this criticism that the UN is perhaps not as influential as some would like it to be. Maybe some small countries like Norway want the UN to be more influential, but many big powers maybe uh, do not consider certain UN agencies to be of importance. So what is your take on the role of the UN today? The UN, of course, is the one global institution someone would have to invent if it didn't exist. I mean, we are completely dependent on the UN or a similar institution to bring the world together and to provide the global arenas which we do need. However, of course, the present UN is only very partly living up to that expectation. It has an extremely weak leadership, which is now completely invisible. And the many parts of it, like the development system, is not really functioning. Why? Why is that? Basically because it doesn't understand what brings development. Uh, it's not focusing on the private sector, on business, on investment. It still lives in the world where small, small money for small programs are changing the world. Well, if, if that was the case, I mean, Tanzania would have been the richest nation in the world. Uh, I'm not aware of any nation which has, not, has got more small development programs and UN programs and bilateral development programs than Tanzania. They got enormous amount, much, much, much more than, say, South Korea or Singapore or Vietnam. Uh, so that's not what brings development. It's the, the right policies and the forces of market and business which brings development. But that understanding is not there in the UN development system, and then it cannot play the role it, 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 it should be. And there is a need for uh, huge uh, reforms. However, these reforms are not likely to happen. And surprisingly, the small, well-meaning nations like Norway are probably the biggest obstacle to reform. How so? Uh, because we are paying for everything, whether it's good or not. So the UN system is uh, taking the message. There is no real need to improve because you will still get the money, whatever happens. And then, of course, that's the counterproductive behavior. But look to the COVID-19, because I think it has been very illustrative. There have been, in my view, a very strong uh, power shift in the world in, in the direction of the, of the nations, of the states. From business to states, everywhere in the world, business has been completely dependent on states. Otherwise, they have gone bankrupt. The injection of money from states, the protection from the states have been critical for business everywhere even in those nations like the United States who tend to speak as if business were, could operate without the states. States are str much stronger versus business, but states are also much stronger versus the global system. Uh, the UN has been completely invisible, with the exception of World Health Organization, completely invisible in the crisis, played no real role at all, while the national leaders in most nations have 
uh, improve their position and strength uh, through the crisis. Uh, so I think what we'll see in the future, unless the UN system is able to reform, which is not very likely at the moment, you will see more coalitions of the willing, more bilateral partnerships, more regional partnerships. The role of the U European Union is, of course, critical in Europe, but ASEAN in Southeast Asia, um, you will see different ways of behavior where nations uh, work in new ways. And of course, the COVID-19 is showing that, where Northern now is in all, like, in all likelihood will open its uh, uh, borders to a number of European nations, but probably not to Sweden, <laughs> which is, of course, unthinkable, uh, until very recently, which is the, uh, Sweden is the closest nation to Norway in the world, but we, will op we have already opened to Denmark and Finland, no likelihood they will open to Germany and many other uh, nations in Europe, and there are much uh, fewer cases of COVID-19 in, in Greece than in Norway, so why shouldn't we open to Greece? Uh, while Sweden, uh, we, we will not open to. So we will see, see many new patterns, because China will try to take the lead in some areas, like in the uh, Belt and Road, and with some of the new institutions there. You will see a more assertive India in the years to come, because the Prime Minister Modi has taken a much higher profile on the on the global global scene. So we will see big shifts and predictable shifts, but in all likelihood with a stronger emphasis on the on the on the European Union and France and Germany in Europe and on nations like China uh, and India. But at the end of the day, the most important factor of all is the relationship between the United States and China. So these are the two superpower in our time and the main factor is how the United States is able to accommodate the rise of China. Rise of China in all likelihood would happen whatever whatever the United States want or, uh, wants or, or, or does uh, but if they can work together we can basically solve every issue of the day. If we start seeing a gradual decline or rapid or fast decline in the relationship between the US and China, everything will be very difficult. So, so let me, you've raised several issues here. If we can just uh, begin with the WHO saga. Mm -hmm. uh, so while you've been critical of the current American administration, do you support their withholding of uh, funding to the WHO? No, absolutely not. I mean, WHO is absolutely critical, and it's, in my view, one of the best parts of the UN system because it has been able to link up to the to the medical professional of the world in a way which most other UN agencies ha has not. So we, we cannot do without the WHO. I'm asking you this because you were saying that maybe we shouldn't just fund... Uh, without seeing results. And of course, most people would say that the American response is just based on uh, personal whims of the leader without uh, you know, actual facts. But if there were to be facts presented, evidence presented that funding is not of, of an a UN agency is not really resulting in progress and the goals are not being met, would that be a reason for countries to withhold? Absolutely, because then they can use the money better for other items. I mean, it's nothing like an indefinite uh, amount of resources anywhere in the world. Even in the richest nations, you need to decide how to spend the money. And if you can spend the money wisely in a better way, you should do it. So what should happen for the UN to become more effective, apart from funding, etc.? What, what, do you see the need for radical change? And if so, what should that be? 
in the development system, there is a need for a complete, let's call it, cultural reform to understand the present world, uh, meaning that you need to understand business, you need to understand the economy, and you need to understand that national decisions is what's driving. Still, this is a system which believes that, that aid and the UN is, is transforming the world, rather than seeing how the very limited resources of the UN can be used in a, as a catalytic uh, in a catalytic way to support the decisions made by governments and, and, and by business and assist them in going in the right direction, which is about sustainable development. But a lot of people would say, Eric, and this is perhaps uh, important to just get your thoughts on, that not everything that business does is good. So a lot of people are very skeptical to this profit-making incentive and, you know, they question why should government subsidize or take the risk or share the risk with businesses. And so, so this kind of skepticism of businesses is there. And But going back to something that you said earlier, I do see that in our own work on, on the SDGs, we see that for the first time, I see the private sector showing enormous enthusiasm on sustainable development. And the reason they're doing so, they tell me, is that they see an opportunity to make profit. So the profit-making thing is always going to be important, but at the same time make a difference. That is at least the rhetoric coming from the private sector. But others are very skeptical. They see this just as another profit-making uh, kind of endeavor. So do you see that kind of criticism? That do you see? Uh, do you believe some of these criticisms are valid when people are a little worried about the real intentions of businesses? Not, not really. I mean, uh, true. You can easily find example of business investment which has been very negative, exploitative, uh, getting profit uh, which which belongs to to the people or uh, exploiting the, the workers, whatever. I mean, there, is, there are any number of examples of that. However, of course, there are any number of examples of political leaders who have made mistakes. And the biggest uh, blunders of all times, those who have killed most people, but they're not by business, but by political leaders. There is nothing any company in the United States has ever done, which is as stupid as the Vietnam War, or the war in Iraq, uh, killing hundreds of thousands in the case of Vietnam, millions of people for, for no real purpose. So we cannot just take this view that only business is making mistakes. Political leaders are making more mistakes, but of course we should oppose mistakes and plunder wherever it is. However, the main problem for a developing nation today is not over investment. Just um, the other day, a political leader I know quite well, President Nkurunziza, or Burundi passed away. Burundi is one of the poorest nations of the world. What is the main problem in Burundi? Is it overinvestment for investors who try to plunder the land? Or is it the fact that Burundi doesn't apply on the business chart anywhere in the world? There is no Google strategy for Burundi or Samsung strategy for Burundi uh, or Chinese business uh, strategy for Burundi. Simply it's 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 it doesn't belong to that sphere. It's so poor that no one takes it seriously as an investment place. That's the problem. So you need to focus on how to, you can get the investment. Then, of course, uh, you need to make sure that these investments are taking you in the right direction rather than in the wrong. So, Eric, just a final set of questions, so the final question. We're sitting in Oslo. It's a, it's a rainy day. The summer temporarily seems to have disappeared. 
let's reflect a little bit on, on Norway's role uh, as a final set of issues that we can discuss. Norway has for many years promoted itself to be an important uh, donor country giving foreign aid. Generosity from, from Norway to the UN system or to other countries has always been praised. Some have um, argued that this is Norway, a little country trying to gain a lot of exposure and influence, etc. Uh, others say it, it is based on solidarity and the fact that we have so much money, we provide 1% of our GNP in foreign aid. All of this uh, has been much talked about, the Nordic model, Nordic generosity of Norway. But Norway has now, just uh, a few days ago, been voted in to a temporary seat in the UN Security Council for two years. What should Norway be doing? This little country, we are very rich. We have, as you've said earlier in this episode, we have certain ideas, experiences of natural resource governance. We, we, are, uh, we play an important role in international peace negotiations. What should Norway in the next two years in the UN be highlighting? The number one issue in the Security Council, in my view, unfortunately it's an issue where Norway has very limited influence, is to avoid conflicts between the United States and China, because that's the, what will be the frame of the world. Because, interestingly enough, China is taking a much more low seat in confronting the US and Russia is doing in the, in the Security Council. So most conflicts in the Security Council are actually between Russia uh, and the US rather than between China and the US. But China is the superpower, India is a regional, sorry, Russia is a regional power. So whatever can be done in the Security Council to bring joint decisions on most parts of the world uh, is in my view the most important. Uh, lots of people are demanding that Norway should play a role bringing, uh, bringing uh, climate change uh, at the uh, uh, agenda of the Security Council. I firmly support that, but I don't think it's the most important arena for climate change. Because I mean, Germany has already done it, and there is limited impact of discussions on climate change in the Security Council, because the Security Council is focused on the crisis of the day. Uh, what Norway can achieve on climate change is much more related to how we phase out oil and move into the solar and wind and, uh, and hydro industries, how fast we take our uh, electrical vehicles program, how fast we electrify by electrical flights, electrical buses, electrical uh, ferries. So it's much more about the political economy of Norway and how that can help, the, help changing, uh, changing the world. We can start broader programs, I think, Norway should start a kind of nature uh, for development program. We have the climate forest uh, program, but that could be taken to a much wider program where we, we just not where we don't only focus on uh, reducing the deforestation in, in, in the rainforest, but start a wide-ranging global program to protect the mangroves, uh, the pulps in the oceans, to do tree planting in massive scale. We can do tree planting now with drones, so it can happen at a much, much faster and much broader scale than, than in, the, in the past. So take this program into a much, much larger program and take the lead for such a program in the Security Council, but because in all UN agencies, that, that would be a major, major uh, contribution to the world. Similar program where we cannot take the lead, but where we can lead with others would be on electrification of the world. 
using the enormous Norwegian competence on electrification to, ma to massive scaling uh, of this in the world. But unless we are more practical on nature on electrification, uh, we will just produce words in the Security Council on climate, which won't really change anything. Eric Solheim, it's been such a pleasure to have you on this podcast. Thanks for coming all the way to my home and for this really, really interesting chat. It's so good to speak with you, Don. Thanks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please spread the news among your friends and share it on social media. The Twitter handle for this podcast is Global Dev Pod. Thank you for listening to In Pursuit of Development with Professor Dan Bannock from the University of Oslo Center for Development and the Environment. Please email your questions, comments, and suggestions to inpursuitofdevelopment at gmail.com.